Thanks, Evan. Um, hey, it's good to see you all. Um, it's my privilege to be up here and read scripture and lead us in prayer this morning. I am sorry that my wife could not be here, so you don't have something nicer to look at while we do this. Um, but, you know, eyes are supposed to be closed anyway during prayer, so hopefully it's not a huge disturbance. Um, so, we are going to be reading out of Luke 19, uh, verses 1 through 10 here. It's the story of Jesus and the tax collector Zacchaeus. Um, and it goes as follows. It says, he, Jesus that is, um, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, the crowds, that is. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Um, Father, I just want to thank you firstly for uh, this building and this church and the opportunity to gather together as a body, Lord, to, to worship you and to fellowship with one another. Um, just what a huge privilege that is um, to be able to do this so freely and so openly, Lord. Um, and there are places in the world that that's simply not the case. Um, so I just pray that we, we are mindful of that every single morning that we get to gather, Lord. Um, while I was reading through the scripture to prepare for this morning, Lord, um, I couldn't help but be reminded of your character and, and who you are. Um, Lord, and what the scripture says about you, um, your empathy and, and your love for us, Lord. Um, how Zacchaeus wanted to see you, Lord, and, and even more importantly, you wanted to see him. Um, despite all of his sins, all of his flaws, Lord. And I know this is the same with us, Lord. Um, you see us for who we truly are, um, and yet you still love us and you still seek us, Lord. And just how amazing that is and how humbling that is, truly, um, to know that when salvation comes to us, Lord, should it come to us, it is not because of what we are doing, um, and it's not because of who we are or what we have done, um, but Lord, because you and who you are and your love for us and your character, your empathy, your, your passion for saving those who are lost, Lord, um, so I just pray that this is on our minds today as Alan comes up and leads the church in his sermon, Lord. Um, I just pray that you bless his words, Lord, and that, and that they are your words more than they are his. Um, and I just pray that we have open hearts to receive what you have to say to us today, Lord. And we pray all this in your amazing name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Harry. Yeah, you can have that. You can, you can keep it. Morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. Hebrews 3 and 4, that's where we'll be um, in just a few minutes. Uh, my name is Alan, one of the pastors here at 
Grace Hill, and um, it'd be an honor to meet you. If it's your first time here, we'd love to be able to chat with you in the lobby, and um, we'll have some time for that uh, a bit later. Um, so many of you know my folks. I, I grew up in a really uh, solid Christian home. Um, I grew up in a context where uh, I was taught pretty much in every sphere of my life, maybe except for public school, God's word. So at home, I was taught God's word. We went to solid churches that were committed to and taught God's word, was involved in youth group and different things like that, where I was taught God's word. And so as a family, we were committed to that and, you know, it, it really impacted me. I took that seriously as a kid. I took that seriously as a teenager. So much so that when I went to college, I decided to study the Bible and get a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. Uh, in 2008, I got my first full-time vocational job uh, in ministry. So I started working for churches and teaching God's word as a really, really, really young uh, adult at the time. I even decided in 2010, my wife and I had been married for about a year, to uh, move to Dallas, Texas and start seminary and get a master's degree in God's word. So, so I've had this journey up until this point in my life of knowing a lot about the Bible knowing a lot about God's word, and doing a lot of teaching. Now, back during that time when I started seminary uh, in Dallas, um, you know, the first couple of years of my marriage were pretty rough, mostly my fault. Um, and so we're in Dallas. They weren't great years of marriage. And, you know, I'm starting seminary and, you know, just this really holy person who knows a lot about God's word and uh, and so uh, my wife and I decided to go to a marriage conference that our church put on. And we walked out of that marriage conference, I mean, both of us, remember the drive back to our house. And we looked at each other. And it was one of those moments where we went, I think that's the first time I heard the gospel. Now, hold on, I've heard the gospel. Like I just told you, faithful parents, faithful churches, uh, studied God's word. I had heard the gospel, but I think that's the first time that I heard the gospel. And it penetrated my soul. And it convicted me of my sin. And I tasted the grace of Jesus and that really launched my wife and I into this season of transformation and, and really savoring and getting to know Jesus for the first time. See, I was in a season of my life where, like I just set up for you, I had a lot of knowledge of God's word. I could teach a lot. I had read a lot of books. I was, you could, you know, I could talk theology with you all day, right? But, but that, to me, was a profession, that, to me, was an academic exercise. To me, that was my way to try to impress you. I knew a lot about God's word, but it, it never really penetrated my heart. 
See, in my faith, the way I practiced my faith, the way I thought about my faith, when I look back all those years, because remember, I had already started teaching and ministering to people. In my faith, the reality was I wore a mask. I projected a false self to other people, not really knowing it, but that's what I did. I didn't want people to know my doubts. I didn't want people to see me as weak. I I didn't want people to know that maybe I had some unconfessed sin in my life. I didn't want people to know that I struggled with insecurity and so desperately wanted people to enjoy my teaching and like me and approve of me and, and all of those things. I didn't want people to know those things. See, although I knew the word of God, the reality was this, listen, whenever I studied it, whenever I discussed it with other people, whenever I taught it, I personally applied the word of God to my mask, my false self, instead of my actual self. See, it's possible, it's possible to hear the word, to know the word, to be a theological expert and look the part and not allow it to actually penetrate your soul. In other words, it's possible to know the word of God and not actually believe it. Or I could say it this way. It's possible to know the word of God and think you're a Christian and actually not be. Last week, we started a new series called Known, and this is a four-week series on the mission and the strategy of Grace Hill Church. As we emerge out of this pandemic, and as we've looked forward into ministry of our church, we wanted to get real clear on what God has called us to as a church and how we're going to go about being faithful to that calling. So if you missed last week, I really encourage you to listen to that sermon because these are going to build on each other and they all impact one another. So make sure that you go to our YouTube channel, our podcast, our website, all of that, and listen to last week's sermon if you've not heard it. But last week, I showed you the mission of our church. I'm going to put it on the screen for us here. But the mission of Grace Hill Church is this, is that we want to be a diverse community that follows Jesus, loves people, and is safe to be known. Now, we said, hey, over these four weeks, we're going to unpack that. What exactly do we mean by that? And we're going to do that. But the other question we've been asking is not just what has God called us to, but how has God called us to go about fulfilling that mission? That's our strategy. And so we asked the question, okay, well, How did Jesus minister to people? What was the strategy of Jesus when he was here, as we read it in the Gospels? And we came up with four words, and conveniently, those four words spelled the word this. So this is our strategy. We said teaching, so that's knowing God through knowing his word. Healing, that's knowing ourselves and where Jesus wants to transform us. Incarnation, that's what we're going to talk about next week. That's all about knowing one another and being committed to one another and sending, loving our neighbors and fulfilling the Great Commission as Jesus has called us to. Last week, we talked about teaching. 
that as a church, we need to be committed to the word of God, that our job is to know God through knowing his word. If you remember, last week I brought my little stool or plant stand. And I said, hey, this is a three-legged stool. And I think this three-legged stool serves as a great analogy for the church. Because I believe that there are three components to the church that are indispensable, non-negotiable. And that if any of these components are missing, if it, just like a three-legged stool, the church will not be able to stand and do the thing that God has called it to do. And so I said, hey, the first three of those strategies that were on the screen, teaching, healing, incarnation, represent the three legs to the stool. And so last week we said it was teaching. But one of the things I said last week about this is that I believe that historically the church has operated with just one leg attached to it. And when I mean historically, what I mean is American evangelicalism. Just one leg attached to it. And that was the leg we talked about last week, the leg of being committed to the word of God, the leg of teaching, of knowing God through knowing his word. I think we've done a really good job at being committed to that, being faithful to that. And we said, that's good. And we talked all about last week why that is vital to our health as a church and being able to do the things that God has called us to do. But this morning, we're going to talk about the second leg. The second leg that I think has been largely missing in our church experience. We said last week that many people, as they come back to church after, what, 12 months, 18 months off, essentially, from the pandemic of gathering together, uh, 12 to 18 months of disruption of our church life, that one of the things that we're hearing a lot from people is that they're coming back to church and they're going, I don't really miss it. <laughs> To be honest with you, I don't really know if I want to keep devoting this much time to the church. Like I still believe in Jesus and love the Bible, but why am I devoting so much time to the church? And one of the reasons why I believe we feel that way is because the leg that we're going to talk about this morning has been missing in the church. The second leg that we're going to talk about is the leg of healing healing, knowing ourselves and exactly where Jesus wants to transform us. Because here is my conviction. My conviction is this, is that many people in the church and historically in American evangelicalism, many people in the church know the word. They fill their church schedules with Bible studies and knowing theology and learning interesting facts about the word and digging into different things. They know the word just like I did, but they have never been led to do the hard work of taking off the mask, knowing themselves, and letting the word of God and Jesus transform them and confront them and redeem them and restore them exactly where Jesus wants to. We've built a church culture, let's just be honest, where we're afraid of one another. This isn't a place to display weakness. This is a display, this is a place to be able to flaunt our strength. We don't want one another to see the areas of our struggle. 
We don't want one another to see our doubts. We don't want one another to see our secret sins or all the things like that. That's, that's not the culture that we have built. We've built a culture where we've said, listen, the cost of actually being known by one another, like really, that's, 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 that's too much. And the scriptures in Hebrews 3 and 4 warn us about this exactly. And that's what I want us to study together this morning. If you have your Bible, go to Hebrews 3. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to organize this in three different points. We're going to kind of grab some chunks of Scripture through Hebrews 3 and 4. Three different points. And I want us to see the warning and then the encouragement we get in this text. All right? So so here's point number one. Point number one, we'll just kind of... Organize it through these three points is this. You can know the word of God and not believe it. Like I said earlier, you can absolutely know the word of God, memorize it, teach it, have a Bible with all kinds of colored pens all throughout it and not believe it. Hebrews chapter three, let's start in verse 12. I'm going to read this, a little, some confusing parts. We'll explain them, see what the word says to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. It says this, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What do you mean by the rebellion? Keep going. Verse 16. For who were those who heard, heard, and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter the rest. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. Because of unbelief. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. They heard the word. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All right, let's dissect that a little bit. It's a little little murky, I think. When the Bible talks about salvation, all right, being saved, it usually talks about it in kind of three different time domains, three different tenses, if you will, right? We, We think about being saved as a past tense thing, right? Right, We look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and we see the work that Jesus did on the cross to save us. So that's something Jesus did in the past for us, right? 
The Bible also talks about salvation as a future thing, right? Man, one day, either when I die or when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring me into his kingdom and get rid of this mortal body and we'll put on immortal body and sin's going to be gone, brokenness and tears and all of that's going to be gone and we're going to live forever in the kingdom of God. That's like this future completion of our salvation, right? But the Bible also talks about salvation in a present tense. Like we are being saved. We have been saved, we will be saved, and we are also being saved, meaning that the scriptures want us to be transformed, renewed, restored by God in this way where we're progressively getting taste of that kind of kingdom that we're gonna enjoy in the future, where we're progressively growing in peace and joy, and, and we're growing out of our sinful habits, and, and all of those things. It talks about it in a present tense kind of way. And so here in Hebrews, salvation in chapters three and four is described as a kind of rest. It's a kind of rest. Meaning this, that you can look back on the cross of Jesus Christ And we believe that at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took all of our sin with him. He was nailed to the cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. He declared it is finished. And so what that means is that you can rest from your work of trying to earn your salvation, rest from trying to redeem yourself from the sin that you've committed because Jesus has completed that on the cross. But it also talks about in the future sense that in the future, you're going to rest in the kingdom of God. All the brokenness of this world will be obliterated. All the things that we struggle with, our worries and anxieties and fears are gone. We'll be able to rest in the kingdom of God. But it also talks about it in a present tense kind of way. That we, as we follow Jesus and let the word of God do its work in our hearts, we're going to learn more and more how to rest in Christ. And so Hebrews is saying, hold on, hold on. Listen, make sure that you're not just hearing the word of God, but that you're actually also following it. I want you to see this in Hebrews 3, in verse 12 here. Notice that this scripture is not addressed to unbelievers. This scripture is not written to people who don't believe. It's not written to people who go, I don't believe the Bible. It's written to people who say, yes, I believe this. I know this. I've studied this. I organize my life around this. That's who this is written to. Verse 12, he says, take care, brothers and sisters. He's writing to the church. And what he's saying here, he's saying, make sure It's a warning to the church. Make sure you don't have an unbelieving and hard heart. Just because you know this doesn't mean you don't have an unbelieving and hard heart. And so he uses the example of Korah's rebellion, number 16, back in the Exodus, right? As you remember, the Israelites were in Egypt. God rescues them. They're wandering through the desert Right, And you've got a whole group of people who believe God's word, a whole group of people who are doing all of the things God has called them to do, build the tabernacle, do the sacrificial system, all of that. And they eventually rebel against God's word. And what Hebrews says is this, they heard the good news. 
They went through the motions of the good news, but it never penetrated their heart. They didn't have any faith in it. And God says, you won't enter my rest if you just know it up here, but you don't place your faith in it. You can hear the word of God. You can go through the motions of all the different things God's word says to do, but at the same time, not actually believe it. And so this here is a warning to the church, to the church that the writer of Hebrews is writing to and to Grace Hill. Make sure that you don't have an unbelieving and hard heart. And it doesn't say, hey, if you grew up in a Christian home, don't worry, you don't need to do that. It doesn't say, hey, if you've got good command of God's word and you can quote a bunch, don't worry, you don't need to do that. No, 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 it's to everyone. It's a warning to all of us. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if you have title of pastor. It doesn't matter what we know about God's word. Make sure that you don't have an unbelieving and hard heart. I believe that we've built a church culture over the last couple of generations where, you know, what we've done is we have essentially said, we're going to be all about the word of God. We're going to be committed to the word of God. We're going to stand in the midst of opposition to the word of God. Amen. That's good. Indispensable. It's what we talked about last week. But in our Bible study, in our gaining of knowledge of God's word, what can be really easy to do is say, okay, in my quest to gain knowledge, I'm actually going to refuse to let it penetrate my heart. I'm not going to let it actually speak to the deep areas of my life or confront me in the deep areas of my life or bring healing and transformation that it's designed to do. And so we've become experts on the word of God, experts on theology, but not a place where we let it do the work that it's designed to do. And so the stool won't stand. You know, it's kind of like if you're an expert in pharmacology, biochemistry, right? And, and let's say you had a particular illness that, and you needed a medicine and you knew everything about that medicine you knew how that medicine was made up and all the ways that it would react with your body and you knew everything and you studied it, you read all the academic journals, you went to conferences and spoke on it, but you would refuse to take it. Just because you know everything about it doesn't mean that you trust it for yourself. That leads us to number two. Point number two is this. The word of God is designed to penetrate your soul. Go to chapter four, verse 11. It says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 
You know, the reality is is that every single one of us in this room, we have all, the Bible would say, and I think our lives would back up, we have all contributed to the brokenness of this world through our sin, through the ways that we've rebelled against God. And I also believe that every single one of us have been broken and battered by living in a world that is broken, filled and racked with sin. We all have sinfulness that contributes to it and we've all been beaten up and broken by living in a world that is broken. And the word of God is designed by God to expose it, to heal us, and to lead us to rest, like a surgeon who's gonna very carefully cut into your body and and extract a cancerous tumor or extract something that's toxic to you. The word of God is designed to do the exact same thing. So maybe, maybe you're here and you struggle deeply with anger. You got a little bit of a temper. And that anger mostly comes out at your family, at your kids, at your spouse. It's sin, right? I mean, it contributes to the brokenness of your world. It contributes to the the broken world that your kids are going to grow up in and maybe even a broken family or home that your kids are going to broke into. But it's also true that you grew up in a home like that too. Well, your mom or your dad was always angry. And you never knew why. And you live in a household where you're always walking on eggshells. You're always on thin ice. You never know what's going to set it off the next time. And so you have this complexity of sin and hurt in your life that's perpetuating a cycle of brokenness to the people you love. And you can see it before your very eyes, and yet you have no idea what to do. And the church has become the last place you'd go to for help. The word of God is designed to expose it, not just to expose the sin, but to expose the hurt. It's designed to heal it by confronting your sin, building a hatred for your sin inside of you, giving you brothers and sisters to encourage you and spur you on, a safe place to be known where you can heal from this, to heal the things of your story, to lead you to rest, lead your home to rest. See, the word of God, you have to understand something. The word of God, it's not going to minimize it, right? It's not going to say, oh, it's okay, you have a hard story. No, the word of God does not minimize sin. It doesn't give any excuses for it. But here's what the word of God's going to do. The word of God is going to point you to the cross in the past. You say, listen, Jesus went to the cross and he took all of that anger in the ways that you have hurt your family and he has paid for it on the cross. There is justice for your sin. And you will not be punished for it. And look, I just want to point your gaze to the future. And I want you to see the kingdom of God. 
where you never struggle with this again. You're never going to feel that feeling of shame or frustration or hatred of yourself because you just treated your kid that way anymore. Because you're going to be rid of that forever. And so let me point you to right now that Jesus has begun a new good work inside of you, ridding you of this hurt and this sin and this anger and the complexity of all, restoring, healing, transforming your soul. Right now, he's in the middle of that work. but we have to trust that Jesus wants to do that work. We have to let him in. We have to see the word of God as something that penetrates the soul and speaks to this thing. It's more than just academic study at a distance. It's something that is working in me right now, today. I don't know what it is for you. We all need to be healed from our stories of living in a broken world. We all need to be confronted with the sin that we struggle with today and the ways that we are contributing to the brokenness of this world. And that leads to point number three. And that is this, that Jesus is the perfect and compassionate practitioner to use the word of God to heal you. Verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You wanna know why we have such a hard time letting the word of God penetrate our souls? Why it's tempting, you know, just to do endless Bible study and try to gain all the facts that we can about God's word and be able to teach it to others or speak well about it fill our heads with knowledge and not allow the word of God to do that work of healing and restoration that it's designed to do. You know why that's so easy? Shame. It's the enemy's most strategic weapon, convincing you that if you show weakness or you ask for help or you confess sin or you expose doubt, or whatever it is, that everyone will leave you. You'll be left all alone out on the island. It's the enemy's most strategic weapon. We'd rather be an expert of God's word. We would rather be the surgeon who is performing the surgery rather than the person on the table being restored. Like James and John in the Gospels, right? We'd rather save people alongside of Jesus than be the person who needs to be saved by Jesus. We'd rather be an expert in God's word than be confronted, redeemed, restored, cut open, healed by it. So let me just break the ice at Grace Hill. Let me just break it right now. Here it is. 
Every single one of us struggles with doubt. I've been in ministry too long to know that's not the case. Every one of us struggles with doubt of God's word. You're not the only one. You're not. Every one of us has big questions that we wrestle with. Every single one of us is unconfessed sin. Every one of us. Again, been in ministry way too long, including your pastors. Every single one of us needs encouragement from each other. Every one of us. You look to your left and your right, you see a room full of people who need encouragement from you. They are insecure and they are scared of what you think. It's all of us, guys. We all are in need of the ministry of the healing and transformative work of the word of God. It does not matter who, which one of us knows it more. Jesus is the perfect and compassionate practitioner. And what I want you to see here is that he knows what it's like to struggle with all of those things. He knows what it's like to be tempted with all of those things, yet he never succumbed to them. But what the word of God tells us is that he understands those weaknesses, he understands those temptations, and so he draws near to you. He doesn't run away. I mean, I think the most like, perfect example of this in scripture is John 4 with the Samaritan woman. Jesus encounters this woman at the well, and he is offering to her this rest that we talk about in Hebrews 3 and 4. He talks about it as uh, water, that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And this woman wants to have a theological discussion with him. And he wants, she wants to debate a few things with him. She's not quite catching what he's saying. She's learned how to facepalm people when it comes to the difficulty of her story and her sin with theology. Nope, no, 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 not going to talk about it. Not going to talk about it. Let's just, let's just talk about theoretical theology. I don't want to talk about what's going on in my heart. And so Jesus says, go get your husband. Because he knows her story. And she goes, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right, you've had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Now, we don't know her story. We don't know, if, is that five cases of infidelity on her part? And she's, it's just been, man, one after the other. We don't know if she's been abandoned five times by five guys. My guess is it's a mix of the two. She's got a complex story of hurt and sin, like every single one of us in this room. And Jesus draws near to her in that shame, cuts through all of the face-palming techniques and gets right to the heart of where she needs healing and transformation. And I love what she says in John 4, 29. Be on the screen behind her. She says, she runs to the town and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. I'm known by this man. Can it be the Christ? So that leads me back to the mission of Grace Hill Church. I told you earlier, the mission of Grace Hill is that we want to be a diverse community that follows Jesus, loves people, and is safe to be known. If we believe everything that we've looked at in the word of God today, 
that Jesus is the perfect and compassionate practitioner, that the word of God is designed to penetrate the soul, then this must be a safe place to be known because I believe the church over the last few generations has not been. That that, miss, that leg has been missing. If we're gonna say that we wanna follow Jesus, then we need to follow Jesus in how he draws near to the sinner and the brokenhearted. If we're a people that believe in the cross of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God and how Jesus is redeeming and saving and healing and restoring us today, then this has got to be the safest place on earth to take off your mask and believe the gospel. And so Grace Hill, our desire as a church is to lead you into better knowing yourself and the specific areas where Jesus wants to transform you, where he wants to grow you, where he wants to confront sin in you, where he wants to bring healing to your story. The church today has a massive self-awareness problem because we have historically been an unsafe place to be known. And I believe that makes us ineffective, unable to do the things that God has called the church to do, ineffective in loving and reaching our neighbors, ineffective at helping people understand that this is a safe place for you to deal with the sin that's all around you in your heart and in your community. It makes us ineffective when we are an unsafe place to be known. And so you go, okay, Alan, that's great. I love it, preaching hard. How are you gonna do that? What does that mean for Grace Hill moving forward? Well, that's why I really just wanna invite you to come back next week as we look at the third strategic area, as we look at the third leg, the other thing that we believe God has called us to do because they all unite together in how we believe that we're going to accomplish the mission that God has given us. But right now, what I would like to do is just, is just pray that God would lead us to be a place that is safe to be known, that God would lead us to be a place where the word of God isn't just studied in the head, important, but it's also believed in our chest, that we would be a place where the word of God is freely able to penetrate our souls and bring healing to our sin and our struggles. I wanna pray that God would give us the grace to be a church that can do that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I'm just highly aware that I preached on something from your word in Hebrews 3 and 4 that sounds so great when we're just talking about it. But when it comes to living it out, it's so much harder. It's really hard to be known. It's really hard to be made aware of our areas of sin that need to change. It's, it's really hard to... confront our stories and where we've been deeply hurt. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to believe that you are leading us to rest, 
not just rest from trying to earn your favor, which you purchased us at the cross, and not just rest in the future as we come into your kingdom, but God, rest now. Transformation now. Healing and restoration now. You doing a good work in us. Rooting out the sin. Restoring the brokenness. God, I don't know who's in this room and I don't know what they're dealing with or where your spirit might be convicting them, but I pray over them now, would they let down the defenses, let down the skepticism, let down the shame and that God, you would draw near to them and they would see Jesus, their savior, the perfect and compassionate practitioner who knows them from head to toe and will never leave them. Spirit, I pray right now in this time that you would do a work in their heart. Maybe it's like me. All those years ago, an expert in the word of God, but hearing the gospel for the first time. God, let no one in this room be too good for that. We pray that you would do a work in every heart in this room to draw them closer to you. In Christ's name, amen.